You're listening to a special edition of One Decision. Alexander Dugin is known as a Russian political ideologue, known for having fascist views. On Saturday 20th of August, he was leaving an event with his daughter Daria, a prominent journalist and fervent supporter of the invasion of Ukraine. Daria reportedly left in her father's car while he made a last-minute change in plans and left in another vehicle. Authorities in Moscow say shortly after, a planted device detonated in her father's car, killing Daria on the spot. Vladimir Putin led condolences to the family and posthumously awarded Daria with one of Russia's highest honours. One day after the attack, the FSB said that a Ukrainian citizen was behind the assassination, a woman who arrived in Russia a month ago with her 12-year-old daughter and rented a room in the same building where Dugina lived, authorities say, to learn her routine. Questions on questions abound after this curious incident. How did the FSB find the alleged perpetrator so quickly? How did they have such extensive surveillance on this Ukrainian woman? And why would she bring her young daughter on a contract killing? Was the notorious firebrand Alexander Dugan really not the target? And why would the Ukrainians, after everything they have endured so far, target the daughter of someone not involved in the Russian government? We decided to call up Edward Lucas, the former Economist Bureau Chief in Russia and one of the most well-informed journalists on Kremlinology and the shadowy politics of Putin's inner circle. Well, the entire event is absolutely shrouded in mystery and it reminds me of a Russian proverb which says, We don't have any facts, only theories. Uh, the first question really is, was uh, Miss Dugina the target um, of the assassination attempt? And it's quite possible it was actually aimed at her father. Um, the second question is, motive, was this done because someone disagreed with her views and wanted to send a message of a kind of ideological kind? Or was it uh, designed for some other purpose, possibly to stir up public panic to send a message to the Moscow elite that nobody is safe, um, part of some internal power struggle. And then there's the third question about who was the perpetrator. And the uh, FSB, which has signally failed to uh, solve many high-profile killings in, in recent years, including my friend Boris Nemtsov and my former colleague um, Alexander Politkovskaya, was amazingly quick to nail this on a Ukrainian who very conveniently had left her um, military ID behind in Moscow, apparently had been tracked by the FSB um, during the previous uh, week, days and weeks, and was then able to escape to Estonia with her child um, after waiting for a day, which, if, if, if true, casts some doubt on the FSB's um, reputation for ruthless efficiency. So, as I say, I think it's all completely unclear, um, but um, no doubt we will find out more in the days and weeks ahead. Whether it's true or not will be another matter. What the FSB say uh, is a result of their investigation. It weaves a very, very curious tale. And this woman who was apparently renting an apartment in the same building as Daria Dugina for a month, uh, preparing for this attack and to have the sort of the operational dexterity to have uh, correctly you know, targeted the, you know, the right car, given the fact that she drove her father's car, which her father was supposed to be driving as they left for this event, but there was a last minute change in plan. I mean, 
Richard, is this uh, something that, you know, sounds like the SBU, that sounds like the Ukrainian uh, special forces? I mean, what do you make of the Kremlin's version of, of this assassination? Well, like Ed, I think the answer to that is we don't, we're not sure yet. I personally would be surprised if this was the SBU, but, um, you know, it's impossible to draw a conclusion. What I would say, and I think we have to remember this, is that, you know, assassination is a feature of Russian political life. And, you you know, you can go back to the 19th century, you can go back to the Decemberists, you can go back to Rasputin, you can go back to Trotsky, you can go back to the many assassinations that have occurred, and, the, and, and Ed has mentioned two very recent and very new ones. I mean, if you have a, if you're a high-profile political activist uh, in Russia, and in any way you're sort of mixed up with the Kremlin, either as a close ally or as a competitor, then you know you're clearly your life is at risk. And I think this killing fits into that pattern. I'm deeply suspicious of the FSB coming out with a clear suspect within 24 hours when, you know, in so many other cases, they failed to come up with an answer. So I, I think we just have to wait and see how this unfolds. What intrigues me is whether it's perhaps evidence of a power struggle or some sort of palace internecine strife within the Kremlin. I think that's that that that's what's really um interesting and that's a speculative observation but it just may have more significance than we realize i I mean that's exactly right and edward you've spent most of your career sort of divining the leaves of kremlinology and trying to work out what exactly is is happening behind that curtain i mean lots of people have speculated that this assassination um of the daughter of one of Putin's closest allies, a man who many say is credited with shaping Putin's ideological worldview. Uh, many people have speculated that that is, an, is indicative of, of the Kremlin fracturing over this hugely divisive war. If that's true, to what end? Well, I'd be cautious about that, actually. First of all, it's easy to overstate Dugin's importance. I wouldn't say he's a political philosopher. Um, That's uh, Sir Sir Richard has got deep connections with um, Cambridge, where they know what a political philosopher is. And I don't think that Dugan would get a job at any Western university. Um, I could call him a crank, or maybe at most a political theorist, but to call him a philosopher, I think, is, is, is overstating his academic credentials. I think it's also easy to overstate his closeness to Putin. He launched the idea of Eurasianism, which was a sort of semi-defunct um, ideology dating back to the originally to the 19th century and then popular at a time in the Soviet Union. And he sort of relaunched Eurasianism and the idea that geography is destiny. And Putin certainly has sometimes used that. But to call him Putin's brain, as some people do, I think is unfair. So I think that Dugin is both a political actor, but also a piece on the chessboard. And this assassination attempt, whether of his daughter or of him, is, I agree with Sir Richard, is someone inside the Moscow power structure sending a message to someone else inside the Moscow power structure. Now, it could be um, the prelude for repression, saying none of us are safe. The Ukrainian fascists can shoot us all, blow us up. We have to be a lot tougher. That you know, the, the idea of it being an echo of the, the Kirov um, murder 
which prompted Stalin's great terror or the Reichstag fire, which prompted um, Hitler's um, ferocious crackdown. That's that's a possibility. Um, it could be tidying up on the on the far right. Um, it could be that Putin is worried that the far right is being too critical of him, because although we think Putin's a fascist dictator, um, there are people in Russia who think he's not nearly tough enough. And this could be a message to them. Watch it. So there's, 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 there's plenty of theories here, but I wouldn't say it's, it's a sign of the sort of inner core of the Kremlin fracturing. I don't think that would be the right, the right interpretation. So I then have to ask you, this has brought back memories of the Ryazan apartment bombings that were linked to Vladimir Putin. You know, is this too conspiratorial or is this absolutely within the, within the bounds of Putin and, and the people he's involved in to do something like this? It's absolutely true that Russia has a long history of what might be called political stunts, where you do something that is actually uh, designed to um, confuse people and push them in the opposite direction. And there's extremely strong evidence that the apartment block bombings in the autumn of 1999, at a time when I was the Moscow bureau chief of The Economist, uh, were carried out not by Chechen terrorists, as the authorities claimed, but by uh, people sponsored by the authorities or perhaps even part of the um, power structures in order to create an atmosphere of public panic in which, in which Putin could then talk very tough, launch the war in Chechnya and rise from be, being a, a political zero, as he'd been when he came in, to being a political hero, as he was by the end of the year, and then uh, president for, uh, eventually president of Russia. Now, the evidence at Ryazan, which you mentioned, is, is very strong because the um, people planting the explosives were caught due to the vigilance of local inhabitants and then turned out to be FSB officers and no one's re ever really explained why FSB officers would be hiding um, sacks of um, powerful explosive hexagen in the basement of an apartment block and the idea this was some kind of training exercise I think is is risible. Um, so there's, there's plenty of, of evidence but we don't know, we, we've never had the absolute, um, absolute proof of it um, but I think that it's clear that the um, Putin and his his gang are quite willing to kill people who get in their way, and that would apply to people who are nominally on their side, as well as to opponents or indeed as and and indeed innocent civilians, as um, happened in the case of the apartment block bombings. It's fascinating and and so difficult to get to the bottom of these things to to know for absolute certainty. Richard, I just want to get your reaction to news that has just come out that Putin has signed a decree which could see nearly one hundred and forty thousand service personnel added to Russia's armed forces in the coming months. And this, of course, is coming uh, in the middle of a big recruitment drive uh, around Russia. They are trying desperately to get more soldiers uh, to sign up to the army to, to counterbalance their heavy losses that, that they are seeing in Ukraine. Yeah, well, I think this, you know, we've discussed this before. I mean, Putin at the moment needs a mobilization of some sort, but can't afford to announce one publicly. So he's got to look at alternative means of replacing, you know, the holes and the very substantial holes in the ranks of the Russian military, which have, as it were, appeared during the campaign. Um, I think the other thing it's worth saying about Dugin is, and I agree with Ed's sort of assessment of who he is and, and where to place him, he had actually recently criticised Putin for not, you know, conducting the war in Ukraine ruthlessly enough. I mean, i.e., he wanted Putin to escalate and um, had even, I think, advocated the use of tactical nuclear weapons. 
So, I mean, you could, in certain circumstances, even claim that Dugin, you know, was was a Putin critic, um, and that you know there are more extreme nationalists on the right who think Putin should go the whole measure and declare total war to finish Ukraine off. So one has to think about that aspect. But I mean, you you mentioned the issue of recruitment. I mean, I wasn't aware of this announcement, but it doesn't surprise me at all because the Russians have massive problems with staffing their military units and um, things have gone, as we all know, very badly. And we don't know quite the number of uh, casualties, but personally, I'm of a view that the upper figures, which run into 40,000 plus of deaths and as it were, injuries that take people out of the the, the line um, are probably the, the more accurate figure, and it could even be higher than that. Edward, my last question to you then is, uh, if it is likely that perhaps uh, Daria Dugina um, was a political pawn um, used uh, for some kind of pretext uh, for Putin or for people on Putin's side as a reason to ramp up the, the, the war in Ukraine, a reason to justify mass mobilization. Let's just take that hypothesis. What does that tell you about Putin's position, really, and Russia's position with the war in Ukraine? Is that a sign that they're getting desperate? Is that a sign that they are really worried about the fact that they have not yet been able to clinch the victory that they had originally thought would come to them in three days? I think that Life is cheap in Moscow, and it just got a bit cheaper. And anyone who's involved in the Kremlin's ideological or propaganda apparatus, and indeed their immediate families, will think, well, this just happened to to Dugin, or rather to his daughter, both of them. Um, Could it happen to me? So the fingers will be running nervously around collars on that front. I think that the broader point is that the war in Ukraine is not the contained special military operation that Putin was... Um, advertising, it's neither contained in terms of Russians, uh, Russia's activities outside Ukraine. We've seen um, you know, the attempt to uh, blow up an arms dump in uh, Bulgaria, which is attracting scrutiny. We're seeing all sorts of um, special operations and mischief happening across Europe, which people are getting very cross about. Um, but it's, it's also not contained in the sense of the blowback against Russia. And so the Russians are finding that the Ukrainians can strike deep behind Russian lines and indeed inside not just Crimea, which Russia thinks is Russia, but in Belgorod, which everyone thinks is Russia, um, things are blowing up. And so I think that the, the, uh, the, the Kremlin's ability to control the situation is, is weakening. Things are happening which they, can't, they didn't predict and can't cope with. And that raises the temperature a bit. And in a raised temperature, um, more things like this uh, can be expected. I, as Sir Richard said earlier, that um, Russia has a tradition of political assassination. I'm, I, whether, however innocent or not, Miss Dugina was, I fear she won't be the, the last. And from the Ukrainian point of view, I think this is um, rather to be welcomed in that no one in the Ukrainian, or previously very fractured Ukrainian political scene, um, no one's bumping anyone else off. They're all united behind President Zelensky, putting their differences aside and trying to defend the country and win the war. And that's a very sharp contrast with Russia. Look, the Russians are intelligent. The leadership group, the people around the leadership group are actually well informed. They know they have a massive problem on their hands. Ukraine 
you know, whatever is said publicly by the Russian leadership is going badly. And although they have had some success in taking some land in the east, you know, the whole military involvement there has been something of a fiasco. So I think we just have to sit and watch and wait and see what the political consequences are of this inside Russia, which over time are sure to play out. The Russians are not stupid. They're not ignorant. They know amongst themselves, and they must be talking about it, they have a massive problem. My final question to you is now, as we are moving into the winter phase of this war, uh, because of course, that earlier in the spring, there were all these conversations about Ukrainian mud and how the Russians really needed to ramp up their, uh, their offensive if they were to get ahead of, of that logistical difficulty and, and, and gain traction on that. Where do you think we're going to find ourselves now we are entering the, the, the winter? Uh, do, do things look better for the Ukrainians or for Putin? Well, I hesitate to say things look better because Ukraine has played such a horrible price. And I think in the West, we still don't quite realise what it's like to have 12 million people, um, which is nearly a third of the population, moves from their homes. That would be like having 20 million people moving to their homes in, in Britain. Uh, tens of thousands of people dead, hundreds of thousands of people with terrible physical and mental traumas. Um, this is a, 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 in, it's with a cloud that size. I'm hesitant to say there's a silver lining. And it's also, I think, a point that maybe Sir Richard's made that if we'd given one tenth or one hundredth of the help we gave, we give to Ukraine now, before the war, um, I think Putin would have been deterred, and this wouldn't have happened. Just imagine if they'd had those long-range artillery and other things that we're now showering them with. Um, so I, I, I don't want to take any great cheer, but I do think there's a real chance now of Russian military decay and disintegration. The um, logistics are really rubbish dreadfully overstretched and these long-range Ukrainian strikes have made the supply lines even longer and all the things not just ammunition but seals and lubricants and spare parts and all the things you need for the big machines that are an essential part of modern warfare are in short supply so the military rot on the Russian side is going to be severe. The problem for the Ukrainians is I don't think they can concentrate their forces in sufficient numbers to do a really big counter-attack um, so they continue to make small progress and to hope for the best. But I think that we're probably going to see um, several more months of what we've got at the moment before things change, change. And then the real question, of course, is Western willpower. Are we willing to carry on supporting Ukraine? If we are, I think they've got a good chance of winning in the long run, albeit at horrible cost. If we aren't willing to keep supporting them, um, then they're going to be in a very difficult position. That's all for this episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Don't forget to subscribe so you never have to miss an episode. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.